episode 35 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today is a very important episode on post-traumatic stress. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, welcome back to Tactical Breakdown. I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. Thank you so much for being here. If this is your first time, welcome to the podcast. If you're a returning listener, as always, thank you so much for being here. I just can't say enough about the love and support that I'm getting from these podcasts and from everybody online. So thank you so much. Today's a very important episode, and I had a long chat with a friend of mine, Michael Sugru, and I'm going to let him tell his own story in his own way during the show, but I want to give you a little bit of a background about who he is. So Michael is a keynote speaker and a dedicated advocate for awareness, prevention, education, and training for post-traumatic stress injuries and resiliency for first responders and first responder suicide prevention. He's a retired police sergeant and former U.S. Air Force captain with over 21 years of management, operational training, and supervisory experience. He's going to get into his story and his battles and his own battles with post-traumatic stress. And so I hope you pay attention to this. This is a very, very important episode. And with everything going on in the world right now with the COVID-19 pandemic, we just want to make sure that everybody knows that there's resources available to you and for you to share with others if you feel that they need it. And those resources for help, those are all links that are available in the show notes right below uh, this episode. So let's jump into this episode with Michael and uh, let's get into it. Here we go. All right, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me on the call today, man. I'm happy to have you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we started talking a little while ago. I mean, it took us a little bit to put this together. You're a pretty busy guy now. I know you're you're on a few podcasts and you're actually going around and, and speaking around the country to agencies and other officers about your experiences. And and um, I'm honored to to have you on the show, man, and to be able to to share your story and to to kind of raise some more awareness and give people some some more information about about these things that people are battling like all over the world. So thank you for being here again. Absolutely. Let's let's jump right into it, man. Let's let's talk about it. So, I mean, I, I gave a little bit of your background. What can you what can you tell us about your what you're doing right now in terms of going around and and sharing your story and why are you doing that? Um, you know, the thing is, I, I've been through a journey, and it took me a while to get to where I'm at. And there was a lot of a lot of things I had to do in my recovery process. And the great thing is that now I'm actually in a good place personally where I can go around and share my story, share my experiences with the hopes of helping others. And the bottom line is the reason why I'm even doing this is there is such a stigma, a negative one, and the culture of being in law enforcement or firefighting or the military. And it's just not talked about. And it's kind of like the elephant in the room that is there and everyone wants to pretend like it's not there. And the fact is, we have more 
police officers, firefighters, and veterans killing themselves than actually dying in the line of duty. And that is absolutely shocking. It's alarming. And it's just now starting to get a lot of media pressure and actually get out in the news. Uh, There's a group called Blue Help. Uh, Karen Solomon helps run that. And because of her, agencies are now starting to report suicides. Um, And the, the fact is, it's not that suicides are getting worse. In my opinion, we've always had a suicide problem amongst first, first responders. It's just that now the true numbers are actually coming out. And when I say true numbers, I still believe there's a lot that aren't being reported and for various reasons. Um, but the fact is, it is a problem and it needs to be a number one priority addressing suicide amongst our first responders. And I believe that the suicides, most of them are caused by what you call PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder, what I like to call PTSI, an injury instead of disorder. And it's, it's based on exposure to trauma. And that trauma can be cumulative, so it can happen over years. In many cases, you're talking a 30-plus year career. It could be from one or more really big traumatic incidents. Um, or in my case, and I think as in the case with many, it's a combination of both these things. You know, it's really interesting when I'm doing this challenge and I'm getting all these people and they're sharing their stories and, you know, sharing about their own battles. It's people don't realize there's it's if you're listening to this and you think it's just you, it's you're it's not (laughs) it's you know what I mean? It's everybody and everybody's fighting this battle in their own way. And whether or not you want to put a label on it like PTSD, PTSI, stress incident, whatever everyone's going through this at their own pace because of their own reasons. And you could be a day in on the job and these things can already start accumulating. Like you said, right. I had a really interesting conversation with somebody the other day and we talked about how for law enforcement and for first responders in general, even, even members of our healthcare community. um, So nurses, doctors, and, and people like that, you're usually interacting with the, with, society and and gen the general populace at the worst day or one of the worst days of their lives and it's repetitive it's over and over and over again it's like it's not like every single call you go to is because somebody wants to like thank you for doing what you do it's you're going there because there's an emergency you're going there to help somebody who needs your help and you're exposed to so much more trauma like you had said than the general populace and it happens so so quickly so um, I mean, it's really interesting if you, if maybe we want to start talking about that is what, you know, let's talk about these incidents that guys are showing, guys and girls are showing up to and, and maybe just not realizing that even though it could be something small, it's, it's taking a toll on them emotionally. Yeah. You know, as for me, as a former police officer and, and working years in the industry, um, even before my big, big incident, you know, we have exposure to things like suicides. Um, and I can't tell you how many I've been to, and I'm talking people jumping off buildings, people shooting themselves, hanging themselves, overdosing, um, but just, you know, constant exposure to death. Um, we have fatal car accidents or car accidents where people are seriously injured. Sometimes when unfortunately children die, um, which brings in the next, which is sudden 
death calls for children or child abuse, sexual abuse. Um, you also talk about just sudden deaths of normal people. Uh, where I worked, they had a huge uh, retirement community with like 11,000 senior citizens. And I mean, I've been to tons and tons of calls where somebody died. And whether it's natural causes or something tragic, those absolutely take a toll on you. And for most people, most people can go their entire lives and they may have, you know, a family member who passes away or a relative, um, but they're not seeing this day in and day out of just negativity, of death, of abuse, of harm. Uh, you talk about domestic violence situations or family disturbances. Um, those absolutely take a toll. I mean, you, you go to these calls where you have partners or, you know, two adults that are fighting and children's are present. And then you, you see the actual effects it's having on those kids. Um, years of abuse we're talking about, years of, of exposure to just negativity. And, you know, we have to go to these calls and not show emotion. We have to be able to go into the worst of the worst scenarios, whether it be a huge bar brawl or if there's an active shooter situation, a domestic violence situation, um, any of these calls, we have to go in without hesitation and we have to save lives and we have to do it putting our own lives in jeopardy for complete strangers every single day. And you talk about, like I said, most careers, you're talking 30 years of these calls just spread out over time. And what I found too, which I think is very interesting is that, you know, when we per go through things in our personal life and I'll give you an example. When I went through my divorce, that obviously had an effect on me in a lot of ways, but I specifically remember going to family disturbances, domestic violence calls, child custody disputes um, after this. And I looked at it totally different. To me, it wasn't a black and white thing anymore. It was like, there's a lot going on to this picture. And, you know, who's telling the truth? What's really going on here? And it's not just as simple as we're going to take someone to jail, but it's just all these things. And so what I found is when you go through these personal experiences in your own life, another example is when I had my daughter. <clears throat> when I had my daughter, I looked at kid calls totally different. And it wasn't that I didn't care about kids. It's just I didn't have my own at that time. So I didn't look at it the same way. It's a, what kid, it's amazing what having kids can do to a person. If you're, if you're listening to this and you don't have kids, I mean, I, I get it. I understand. Um, but for those of us that do, I mean, I, I, it's funny. I mean, I pride myself on being a pretty tough dude, but I mean, I can, it's, it's funny. I watch something with my wife on TV or we, we listen to something and I'll get a picture in my head of like, maybe something, you know, we listen to the news, something traumatic happened to a child or something. Um, and I'll start getting choked up about it because automatically your mind goes, what if that was my kid? It, it, was, it was actually really interesting. I mean, this is a total aside to our conversation, but have you seen the incident that just happened in that zoo where that child fell into the gorilla enclosure? I did. What the hell? Hey? I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I was just, I was in shock. And I, I, but like you said, I immediately put myself in that situation. You know, I take my daughter to the zoo at least three or four times a year. And I automatically thought about how it would feel if that was her. Yeah, I told, that's funny. I told my wife, I was like, 
I was like, she's like, what would you do? And I said, I'd be, I'd be in there fast. I, as they were still falling, I'd probably be right behind them. I said, and at the end of the day, I said, but you'd have to be on, you'd have to be ready to go. Cause literally I'm having, I'm going to distract that gorilla. Who's going to kill me. Right. Like I, I know what's going to happen. Um, and you got to get in there, get the kid out before, <laughs> before he comes back. Right. Like, Absolutely. Like, you yeah, know what I mean? Just, like, yeah, I mean, um, and there's, it's funny. There's all these activists out there right now that are saying, you know, like, well, they shouldn't have had to, you know, kill the, kill the gorilla. And it's like, are you kidding? If that would have happened in Texas, there would have been 800 holes in that gorilla before, before the authorities actually showed up to to deal with it right like yeah it's, it's so you know and i and I, if you're listening to this in texas i mean i'm not i don't mean to stereotype you but it's it's really interesting to me just incidents like that you're watching it and you're like what you know what would i do and you start running through the scenarios in your head and i've had that same situation happen when you know you deal with like a any type of call you show up to a call and maybe it resolves and now you're you're sitting there, you're doing your report, or maybe it's later that night, you're at home, but you replay that in your head. And it doesn't have to be the most traumatic experience that you had. It doesn't have to be the craziest situation. It could be a very mundane, regular call for you, but for whatever reason, on that specific day, it hit you harder than most. And now you're thinking about it. What are, you know, and I think you know what I'm talking about. What are some things that we can do, you know, if, if we start going down that rabbit hole on ourselves and, and playing the what if game, I mean, that can be really dangerous, can it? Absolutely. You know, we as first responders, we want to control everything. And we're used to being able to control everything. And, you know, what happens is, and, you know, I'll give you a perfect example is, as a police officer, you know, if we have to pull out our our weapon, our handgun, and we have to point it at somebody, usually, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, people see that they stop what they're doing and they start listening and they follow commands. Now what happens is when you do that and then all of a sudden they're not listening to your commands and they continue to come at you. And, and that's not something that you've necessarily trained for. It's not something that you ever expected would happen. I mean, we know that it can happen, but when it happens for the first time, when you don't have control and when you've lost control and it's absolute chaos, but you still, still have to perform and you still have to do your job. And sometimes you have to make split second decisions that people want a Monday quarterback, you know, for years to come. But you in that situation had made a split second decision, which could mean not only your life, but the life of innocent people. You know what? I want to touch I want to talk about something you just brought up and, and that looking at an incident after it occurs and then trying to, to go over it. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, and you're sitting there and you have people, like you said, Monday morning quarterbacking the, the situation as it unfolded. I mean, we, we, like I said, we just did this IRT on officer involved shootings. And that was one thing that got brought up was that, you know what? You're not that officer. I don't care who you are, how much experience you have or anything. You could be um, that person's trainer, their instructor, their sergeant, their lieutenant, the captain, the chief. You could be a news reporter. You could be just Billy Bob sitting on the couch. You don't know what was going on in that officer's mind during that incident as it was happening. And you, and to pretend that, you know, is ignorant, right? So what is the danger of, like in, in your opinion, what do you think is the danger of these people going through and then trying to tell you that you did something right or did something wrong on any given call? 
You know, I mean, there is a need for looking at incidents after they happen. I mean, I, I just want to say that first, that there is an absolute need to do that. And a lot of times it's done for training purposes so that things can be improved. Um, and I think, you know, in some cases, things can be can be done differently. But like you alluded to, everyone has a different potentially perception at the time. They're seeing things differently. They're hearing things differently. In my shooting alone, you know, there's three other people involved in and we all saw and heard slightly different things. And I even, for, the, for weeks after this happened, I thought somebody that was next to me was somebody else, but it turns out it was somebody different. And I didn't even realize who was standing, you know, less than two feet from me during a, a certain point in this incident. And it just goes to show you that you end up getting tunnel vision. You can have selective hearing. Um, you can hyper-focus on one thing. An example could be, you know, somebody's finger, if it's going towards a trigger of a gun um, or, you know, something where you're just so focused on it. All you see is this minute detail, but you're not aware of what's going on around that. And we all perceive things differently. And it's, it's based on body chemistry. It's based on life experience. It's based on our training. I mean, it's based on so many different things. I mean, you and I, for example, we could be in the exact same incident standing shoulder to shoulder and I guarantee you that if you were to interview us after this incident is all said and done, we're going to have different perceptions and we're going to see some different things. There may be some similarities, but I guarantee you there's going to be a lot of differences as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there, you talk about the, the human factors when it comes to these types of incidents. There's, there's so much stuff and it's, and it's, it's interesting because it's really starting to come to light now. And I know this is something that you had mentioned right before we kind of started recording here, but there's a lot more that's coming to light, whether it be in regards to human factors, human performance during these types of incidents and or physiological and psychological responses to trauma after these types of incidences and how the media and, and I'll use media as a, in, in quotations, you can't see my hands, but the media is, is taking these incidents now and we're starting to draw more attention to what our first responders and, and veterans are going through because of the roles that they have, they have chosen to take. And it's not just, it's not just, Oh, there was a, an officer involved shooting. And so let's investigate and see if the officer did anything wrong. It's we're starting to realize that there's there, even though there is a high number of officer involved shootings that maybe we don't have all the information. And nobody seems to want to ask, like, what about that officer? Are they okay? Like, what are they going through? And I think that we're starting to see a slight change in, in the narrative on that. And I mean, I know it's something that you're trying to actively do is, is to, to flip the script and start trying to draw more attention to the, the mental health of these professionals that are, that are going through these types of incidents. Yeah, I think agencies are absolutely getting better. I mean, I think there's a lot more work to be done, but you know, most agencies now, after a, what they call a critical incident, and a critical incident, I mean, it varies what that is, but it means basically an incident that is big enough to where it potentially has an effect on the people involved. And so, you know, you, you can't do this with every single call you go on every single day for every day of your career, but when you have a big incident, and I'll just give an example, let's say just a simple child death, okay, let's say you have five they go to a call and a child dies during that call. And, and no matter what the means are, whether it's accidental, it's, it's natural, 
it's homicide, but that is going to have an effect on all of the people potentially that went to that call, including the ones that weren't there, like the dispatchers, the people that took the calls and heard the things on the radio and departments. Now, when things have slowed down and the investigations at a pause or when they can, they get these people together that were involved in this incident. A lot of times they'll bring in a therapist or a counselor or some agencies have their own psychologists and they debrief the incident and they talk about the incident. And this is a opportunity where people can talk about how they perceive things, um, how they felt about it, how they're feeling now. And, and the key with that is you have to have the culture that supports that because if you have the culture that supports that, then you're going to have officers that open up during these debriefs. Cause I've seen debriefs where, you know, you go cause you have to go and you're checking the box and nobody wants to admit that they're messed up or this thing had an effect on them. So they don't bring it up and they don't talk about it. And so they just keep it inside themselves. And the key to this is if you talk about things as they're happening or when you get a chance to over time, I think you're going to be in a lot better place. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that these things kind of build and build and build. I equate it to kind of like you have a jar. I mean, the best way to visually look at this, you have a jar, and when you start your career, it's pretty much empty. And as you're going through your career, slowly this jar just keeps full, filling up and filling up and filling up with just crap and negativity and trauma. And if you get to the point where this jar overflows, and nothing else can be put in the jar, it's, it's going to be too late at that point. And so you have to address these things before you fill up that jar. I think that's a really important point. The, let's, start with, let's start with the AARs. Now, I'm going to call them an AAR. Obviously, you and I both come from military backgrounds. Uh, for those of you listening to this, an AAR, After Action Review, um, you can call them different things. You can call them debriefs. You can call them whatever you want. When we're doing these these reviews, these debriefs, after an incident occurs, what is something that should be being done every time when it comes to taking into account the mental health of the people involved? Well, like I said, you have the group debrief, but I think you also have to offer and, and make sure it's available that officers individually can seek out counseling, uh, seek out a therapist, or you know, most agencies now, they have peer support teams, and these are first responders. So they're officers, they could be military, they could be firefighters, and they're specially trained in how to be a peer support person. And, you know, but the key is they have to feel comfortable talking to these people. And there also has to be some, you know, confidentiality as well, because um, if you're going to be sharing what's truly going on deep inside you, this, this is probably something you don't want the rest of the department to know about. So you have to be able to trust these people that you're going to talk to. And so on the other end of that too, is that let's say you have a really bad incident and maybe half the people are fine. They're like, I'm good to go. I'm, I'm ready to go back to work. But maybe you have a few that are like, you know what? I need some time off. Well, maybe they only need a day off. I mean, maybe one simple day could make a critical difference. Maybe they need two days off. I mean, it can vary, but um, you know, in my incident, my big shooting, we went back to work, I, I think within two weeks and I honestly think looking back now, I should have taken more time off. But even looking at that incident, it affected us all differently. I'm the only one out of the four people involved in the shooting that medically retired for PTSD. Um, that's not to say it didn't have an effect on the others because I know it did. I absolutely know it did, but it affected them all differently. 
And yet they also all had a different role in that. Um, they had different actions in it and there was different outcomes, you know, based on other people's actions. And so even in just that one incident, it affected us all differently. But the key is having resources available that are easy to access and where there's not going to be any kind of negative consequences to them professionally or personally, but it's simply they can get help and hopefully get back to work. More importantly, get back to life. 100%. Um, and first off, I, and here's something I want to touch on while, we, while I have you on the call too is, um, you know, I don't think 10 years ago that this, this podcast interview would have happened where somebody like yourself has the balls, for lack of a better term, to get out in public and say, hey, listen, I've been medically retired because I have PTSD. I think that takes an incredible amount of bravery, man. So first of all, um, just like thank you to you for, for sharing that with us. And I would love to, if you're, if you're able, if you could maybe, because we, we have touched on it and we haven't talked about it, can you explain the, the incident that you were involved in, this, the shooting that you were involved in, and then the process of what happened from the time the, the incident took place and then you actually leaving um, and, and medically retiring with PTSD? Yeah, you know, basically I was a brand new sergeant. Um, I literally had been promoted and I went through a short training program and I was basically cut loose on my own. So I was on the street and I was supervising a patrol team and it was actually my second week of being a solo patrol sergeant and our shift started the night after Christmas. And so it, our shifts then they started at uh, 2130 hours at night and ended at 0730 hours in the morning. And so Started the day after Christmas. Uh, the shift was pretty uneventful in the beginning. I had my team with me. It was our Friday. Uh, we we're going to be going home in about four hours. And all of a sudden, a uh, dispatcher puts out a uh, 911 call, does these alert tones, which immediately grab our attention. It's, it's really only reserved for the most, uh, I guess, dangerous incidents or in-progress incidents. Um, they're rarely used. So when they're used, we know it's, it's something bad. And the dispatcher puts out that there's a woman barricaded in a apartment or a condo and there's a subject with a knife. And so we immediately start driving towards this location. It ends up being a condominium, a two-story condominium, but it's attached. It's in a densely populated area. So just tons of uh, higher rise apartments and condos lined on both sides of the street. It's really dark. Um, as I'm driving there, the dispatcher puts out that now the boyfriend and girlfriend are barricaded in the bedroom. I was confused because I wasn't sure if the boyfriend was the one with the knife or there was actually a third party with the knife. So I asked for clarification. The dispatcher puts out that no, in fact, there is a third party with the knife. So what we know is there's a male and a female barricaded inside a bedroom and there's a subject with a knife. Um, I get there first on scene very quickly. I mean, at most, I think it was a couple minutes. And as I'm starting to get out of my car, the dispatcher starts screaming. I mean, I, I've never heard her voice like this. Very panicked. And she states that there's a struggle, there's a struggle, and then the phone line went dead. And as I'm getting out of my car, my female partner arrives on scene. 
I can hear blood curling screams coming from the distance. I can't see where they're coming from, but I can hear them. It sounds like a woman is either dying or being killed. I mean, just horrific screams. So my partner and I, we immediately start running towards the direction of the sound of the screams. We go through this dark courtyard. We end up finding the condominium and it goes dead silent. I mean, no noise. It went from, I heard these blood curling screams to just eerie silence. Um, I try to kick open the, the front door with no luck. Uh, we noticed there was a huge window the size of a door that had been shattered in to the condominium. And we got units on the way. Uh, but the thing is, we can't wait. We don't know if these people are dying, if they've been killed. So my partner and I, we immediately enter through that broken window. Uh, we clear the downstairs. Uh, there's like a kitchen that we went through, a family room, dining room. And then we immediately go to the base of the stairs. So now we know basically that there's no one downstairs, but we got to get upstairs to this couple. So we're at the bottom of the stairs. We have our guns out. Um, at the time, we had mounted flashlights on our handguns, and we're giving commands. Hey, police, make yourself known. Come out with your hands up. And it seemed like forever, I mean, of just nothing, no response. And in reality, we're talking seconds. Eventually, without notice, a male subject, partially comes out where he can see him at the top of the stairs. His eyes are wide open like a zombie. He's sweating profusely. He's just got this glazed look in his eyes where he's just staring straight through us. Eventually, he actually comes all the way out. We can see his body. He had a ceramic butcher knife in his right hand. And again, we're now yelling, guns out, drop the knife, drop the knife. No reaction whatsoever. I mean, no body reaction, no facial reaction, no reaction with the eyes. I mean, it's like, it's like a horror movie. This guy is just staring straight through us like we're not there. At some point, the two other officers come inside the, the condo. Uh, there ends up being a male officer behind us. He gets his taser. Another female officer who's perpendicular to the stairs, she has her handgun out. Next thing you know, the, the male subject takes the knife up in an overhead position with the blade coming down at us and starts coming towards us. At that point, we shoot. He comes down the stairs. Uh, two of the officers retreat into the family room, dining room area. The other male officer, he tried to use his taser, but it was ineffective and missed. He dropped the taser. So now the other male officer and I, we're, we're probably like, I mean, we're close. We're like four feet from this guy. He's on his side. He still has the knife in his right hand with the blade towards us. We're yelling at him, giving commands. He starts to come up again with the knife. At that point, we shoot again. Um, you know, there's, there's no way to, to say it or sugarcoat it. We killed him. He died. I mean, instantly. And the thing is, we had to get upstairs. And so the two female officers went upstairs and the couple was behind the door. This, this, suspect had been stabbing through the door and the door was literally coming off the hinges. I mean, had we not gotten there when we did, I have no doubt that these two people would have been killed. No doubt. Uh, we ended up getting them outside the, the condo. It turns out, you know, I, I, we all thought this was some stranger that just broke into this condo was trying to kill this couple. And it turns out that actually this male was one of the roommates that lived at this condo. And there was three guys that lived at this condo. One was actually still with family for Christmas. And so the one guy had his girlfriend over and the suspect 
the night was fine. Come to find out earlier that they were hanging out downstairs. It was a normal night, no issues, um, never any issues between these people. Um, I think they were like watching TV or a movie together. Somebody was making food. And at some point, the boyfriend and girlfriend, they go up to their bedroom and the male's playing like PlayStation or Xbox. The girlfriend falls asleep. And it turns out in the middle of the night, I mean, shortly before we get this call, the suspect goes into that bedroom and just jumps on the bed and starts trying to strangle the guy to death. Um, somehow, this couple, to wrestle this guy outside the condo, they lock the door, run back upstairs, barricade, and they call 911, which is when we get the call. The suspect ends up breaking through the window. And I'm assuming because there was a kitchen drawer open, he had the knife, grabbing a knife, heading straight upstairs, and was trying to get through that door when we got there. Now, after that, I mean, I could go into the whole process of the shooting and, and how rough that was. We were immediately sued. Um, but there, there's an important thing to know about this particular case and why it had such an effect on me. And that is because the suspect, the person that we killed, he had no criminal history. He had no police contacts. He had no issues. He had no history of mental disorders. I mean, he had nothing. For all intents and purposes, he was a good kid. And I say kid because he was in his early 20s. And the hardest thing about this is to this day, even after being through a federal lawsuit, which drug on for four years, and I actually went through trial, nobody to this day knows why he did what he did. We don't know if it was drug-induced psychosis. We don't know if it was just a psychotic break, but literally this suspect had no history, like I said, no history of mental illness, and oh, to make matters worse, he has an identical twin brother, and so when I was going through these legal proceedings and when I was in federal court for the lawsuit, I had to see the same subject that tried to kill my partners and I. I had to see the same exact person, and that absolutely took a toll. You know, initially I was in denial. I wasn't really sure how it affected me, but I immediately started isolating. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I started drinking more. Um, I was married at the time. I pushed my wife aside. I didn't tell her about what was going on with me. I didn't tell her what really happened in this incident. I just felt like I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't explain what was going on. I just... I wanted to sleep it away or I wanted to drink it away. That's, I just wanted it to go away. It was like a bad night. I wish that it never happened. And so, you know, I dealt with that. I went through that. But what really took a toll was this, this lawsuit drug on for four years. And in that four years, we had to do depositions where I was sitting directly across from the table of, with the father of the subject that I had killed. And we had cameras less than a foot from our face videotaping us. And we had to talk about this incident for four years. And then I had to go to federal court and was on trial for two weeks and had to relive it again. So it's like I could never get this incident to just go away. I could never get it out of my head, out of my mind. And I never worked on addressing the incident or addressing why it was bothering me. Wow. 
That's uh, it's just, I mean, I can, in my mind, I'm going through and I'm trying to picture everything as you're describing it. And you did such a great job describing that, that I think anybody listening to this is like, holy shit. There's a lot of points that you made in there um, that, I mean, I think are going to be shocking to some people listening to this. The fact that, like you said, you were sued immediate, like immediately after the incident. People are probably like, why, why does that happen? Why would that happen? And I mean, obviously there was, was there ever some type of inquest to, to the shooting as it happened or after, like, was it, was it declared a good shoot almost right away? And it was more of a, a civil court process. And how did that, how did the federal lawsuit come about? So a couple things happened, you know, right after the shooting, and I think they've since changed this, but we had, and I'm talking right after. So later on that day, after being up for 24 hours, we were individually interviewed by the district attorney's office where they have an investigator who works for the county district attorney. And we also had um, detectives or interviewers from our own agency that sat in on the interview. And that's when we were first, um, you know, investigated and we were asked what happened and interviewed. And, you know, it is an interrogation. I mean, you, you feel like a criminal, you feel like a suspect. And for all intents and purposes, you are until you're cleared. So, you know, went through that. And then a week later at the time, they did a separate IA uh, investigation interview. And IA, internal investigations, that's normal. All agencies are going to do them. Um, it's not unusual. They need to be done. And so that was done a week later. Our shooting was cleared very quickly. Um, I don't remember the exact time frame, but I want to say it was a matter of weeks. We were cleared by the district attorney. It was a good shoot. Um, no issues whatsoever, no red flags. Um, in our county, we had what's called a coroner's inquest. And the coroner's inquest is not, it has nothing to do with a criminal case or even a civil case, but it's something that are, it's basically a hearing that they have in our county and a lot of counties where if anybody dies um, at the hands of law enforcement or law enforcement's present, and I'll give you an example. Let's say in a jail setting, if there's somebody that hangs themselves, they're going to have a coroner's inquest. If there's a fatal car accident where an officer's chasing somebody and the car T-bones, you know, an innocent civilian and they die, or if the suspect dies, they're going to have a coroner's inquest. Uh, if there's an officer-involved shooting, somebody dies, they're going to have a coroner's inquest. And the structure of it is they have a judge or a commissioner. They have a full jury, just like you would have in a, in a trial. It's open to the public. It's open to the news media. Um, the family members were there for ours. People from my agency, my wife at the time was there. Um, we had that and we got the finding that we wanted. Um, there, there's, I think, four different findings and we got the best possible one you could get. And, but we were sued before that. A lot of times people will wait till the coroner's inquest to, to file the lawsuit because they want to get more information. They kind of want to see what's going on. But in our case, I want to say that we were sued within a week of the shooting. I mean, it was really quick. And remember, this is back in the end of 2012. Back then, I mean, you might get sued for a shooting. Nowadays, it's almost guaranteed 100% that you're going to get sued for a shooting. I mean, it's almost guaranteed. Back then, it wasn't. But we were, and it was a civil lawsuit. Um, you know, at the time, I was, I got to tell you, I was, I was, I took it personal. I was angry at the family. Um, I thought it was a personal attack on me. And, and part of this is my recovery and my growth and, and my perception of how I look at things differently. But I feel so bad family. I feel so bad as a father for his father. 
And I don't blame angry with them. I think they just wanted definitive answers. That's what they wanted. I think that's why they did the lawsuit. I don't think it's because they're greedy. I don't think it's because they're after money. I think they truly 100% wanted answers. Did. And the fact is, we know he tried to kill his We know he tried to kill us, but we don't know why. And unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to know why. I have to live with that. The other officers involved have to live with that. I more than anything wish, and I wish I could talk to the father. I wish I could have a conversation with him and let him know how much an effect this had on me, that I'm not some cold-blooded killer that just gunned down his son, that I didn't want this to happen, but I had no choice and it had to happen. And to this day, and it's going to affect me for the rest of my life, rest of my life. So we ended up going to trial finally in September of 2016. Remember, this shooting happened technically December 27, 2012. Our federal trial goes September 2016 in two weeks long. I had to hear all these crazy expert witnesses come in that basically in court in front of a full jury are calling us cold-blooded murderers. I mean, it was unbelievable. And that whole process, even though what they were saying was just so far-fetched and just so wrong, it made me start second-guessing myself. It made me start questioning myself. What if this? What if that? What if I would have paused here? What if I would have done this differently? What if I hadn't been the first one there? What if I would have waited to go in? I mean, there's so many what-ifs that you can play all day long. And we won the trial. Not that there's any winners, but we prevailed in this trial. And I thought for me, I thought this big burden, this weight off my shoulders was going to go away after this trial. It's like, oh my gosh, it's finally done. I can go on with my normal life. It wasn't the case. I actually spiraled. It made it worse. Absolutely worse. Didn't make anything better. Didn't fix anything. And I was on a downward spiral. In November that same year, so a couple months after the trial, my best friend tried to kill himself when I was on duty. He is a Vietnam veteran. He was a 35-year reserve officer with our department. I mean, my best friend, we rode together for years. And I didn't know he had PTSD, but he tried to kill himself when I was on duty. Thank God he's alive today, but I saw him right before they rushed him into the emergency room surgery, and I thought he was going to die. I was talking to him and telling him it's going to be okay, but I didn't think it was going to be okay. I didn't think he was going to make it. As messed up as that sounds, I was telling him that to reassure him, but I didn't think he was going to make it. Thank God he did. He knows it now, but he saved my life. Because he did that, it made me realize that's where I was going, and I couldn't do that to my daughter. I couldn't do it to anybody. So a month after that, I finally, after years, mustered up the courage. I was so ashamed, so embarrassed. I felt so weak. And I asked for help. It is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I'm so glad I did it because I'm here today because of it. That's powerful. And I mean, I know, you know, there's, you get to go, you go around and you speak to officers all around the country. And, you know, this podcast is listened to all around the world. If there's an officer listening to this and they're, they're starting to see things or, or feel things in themselves where they're like, you know what, this is maybe the road I'm going down. What 
what would you want to say to those officers? The first thing is there's help. There's help out there. There's hope. There's resources. Um, there is private confidential hotlines. Uh, one of them is 1-800-COP-LINE where you can actually call no matter where you are and you can speak to another police officer. Um, it could be in the middle of the night, 24 hours a day. You can talk to them. Um, you know, find out who you trust. I mean, if it's a peer, if it's a religious figure, if it's, you know, your doctor, your attorney, whatever the case is, you got to talk to somebody. The biggest thing you can do, the most helpful thing you can do is just talk to somebody. Find out that you're not alone. Don't carry this burden inside yourself and just let the weight build up and build up on your shoulders. You got to get it out. You got to talk about it. One of the best things I ever did, and this was early on in my journey of recovery and getting better, is I attended first responder support meetings. Only open to first responders. They have them all over the place. It's like once a week, different locations, hour long, and it's first name only. You don't say where you're from, what agency, and it's a discussion meeting. And in that meeting, I found out that I wasn't alone. I found out there's other people, firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, cops that were going through similar stuff, the same stuff. They had the same feelings. And that was liberating. That was absolutely liberating to know that I could be in a room with people I just met, trust them completely, and share things that I couldn't tell anybody else, including most people at my own agency. But I could, in fact, share it in this room with these people I literally just met. And now those people are my good friends. And, and that's the thing is I, I hid this from my agency as far as the officers, the people I worked with. I was so ashamed that I was off that I didn't tell anybody why I was off. I was going through some skin cancer stuff. And that's what I told people. They're like, oh, why aren't you at work? When are you coming back? I'm like, oh, well, I'm dealing with the skin cancer. And I was, but that wasn't why I was off. You know, that only put me off for like a week here, a week there. I was off because I was messed up and I needed help. That's why I was off. I was off because of PTSI. But it took me years to even be able to admit that to my own coworkers because I was so ashamed and so embarrassed. And, and that's the beautiful thing about this whole process is now I don't care who knows. I don't care who hears it. I don't look at it as weakness. Like I am sharing this with the world. I went from being so ashamed I couldn't talk to a single person about it to now I'm just putting it all out there. Good, bad, indifferent. I'm not perfect. I made a lot of mistakes and I want people to learn from my mistakes. Nobody's perfect. I certainly wasn't. But the thing is, you can absolutely get better. I am doing so much better. And, and I tell people this. It's so important to know this. You will never be the same person you were before PTSD or PTSI. You just won't. And I can say the same thing for if you go back to before you went in the military, before you joined the fire department, before you became a police officer, you're not going to be that same person you were before you started this career. You're just not. And that has nothing to do with being diagnosed with PTSD or PTSI. It's exposure to all this negativity, to trauma, to things that most people never have to see in their life. It's going to take a toll. You'll never be the same person, but I truly believe in my case, I'm a better person because of it. Well, I think you're one hell of a strong dude for, for being able to get to where you got to, um, you know, like you said, right from being able to ask for help and, and going through those processes. But now 
that you're sharing it with others as is so powerful. And so thank you for doing that, man. I mean, I know I can, you know, I've personally experienced people that have taken their own lives um, from this. And I know you have, and there's a lot of, you know, of, of our brothers and sisters that, that go through that. I mean, just recently there's been so many cases of officers dying by their own hand um, in both Canada and the United States. And uh, it's, it's the fact that it happens. And like you said, the fact that it grossly outweighs line of duty death, um, there's something wrong there. And if this, if this conversation, if, if there's one person hearing this story and it, it makes them rethink things and they go and get help and they're going to be alive next year because of it. Um, I think it's all worth it. So thank you for what you do, man. It's, it's really inspiring. No, absolutely. And that's the thing is I'm giving back now. I'm absolutely giving back and I want people to know they're not alone. They're not weak. It's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, if you went through all this, if, if you're involved in these incidents and it had zero effect on you, I mean, you would be a psychopath. I mean, let, let's face it as bad as that sounds, these things take a toll. They have an effect and it builds and builds and builds. So just, just please reach out, pick up that phone, talk to somebody, send a message. Um, there is endless resources as far as trainings. There's retreats for first responders. One that I'm very involved with, it's called the West coast post trauma retreat. Uh, there's the save a warrior program, which I'm sure you've heard of for uh, military and also for first responders. I mean, it's as easy as a Google search these days and you can just type in law enforcement or firefighter or first responder or veteran and type in PTSD treatment or PTSI treatment. And you're going to find that there is so many resources out there, but you have to, the key is you have to ask for help. That's the key. Raise your hand up, ask for help, utilize these resources. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're listening to this and you're wondering about all these things that, you know, Michael's mentioned or, or others, um, right on the website at the breakdown.ca uh, forward slash help, I believe. Um, we are going to have all of the, all of this information available for you. So um, all these links, all these links are going to be on this show notes page specifically. So if you're listening to this on your podcast player, you can scroll down. The links are all going to be on there for you. Um, and same thing on the, on the show notes page. Um, it's important that we get out this out there as, as easy and as accessible as possible. So, um, Michael, listen, man, I'm excited. I'm hopefully later this year, I'm going to get a chance to get down your way. Um, and, uh, and you and I are going to get to, to actually meet up and, and spend some time face to face. Um, so I'm excited for that. But, uh, listen, man, thank you so much for taking the time today and, and sharing your story with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, dude. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Take care. All right. That wraps up our conversation with Mike. If uh, you want to get more resources and more information on any of those helplines, again, check out the show notes page. All of those resources will be there available to you. And as always, if you're finding this information actionable and useful, please consider subscribing to the podcast. It's really helping us take this thing to the next level. And I can't wait to keep bringing this actionable, useful information to you and to everyone else. So thank you so much for listening to the show. And we will see you next time on the Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe.